Good morning, church. Today we are continuing our way through Nehemiah. We're going to be wrapping up chapter 9, covering verses 31 through 38. Where we are is we're in the midst of the people responding to God. The law was read, the people responded appropriately. They celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, and last week we talked about the goodness of God. And today we're going to continue on to the rest of chapter 9, talking about the grace of God. The grace of God that was evident through Israel's history. But it's in the parts of their history that we don't like to talk about. I mean, we don't mind talking about Israel's history of disobedience and rebellion. We don't really like talking about our own history of disobedience and rebellion. But what we're going to see here in chapter 9 is this. The grace and mercy of God was evident in and saturated Israel's history of disobedience and rebellion. So the principle that we're going to see as we work our way through the passage is this. Instead of being embarrassed or disappointed or discouraged by our shortcomings, we can use them to highlight the redeeming grace of God. Let's start off by reading the section together today. Nehemiah 9, starting in verse 31. It says, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that have come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, and our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and the warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich lands that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress." Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. All right, before we dig in, let's talk about the structure of this passage. We can break down this section into four parts. Verse 31, we're going to see that despite their turbulent history, God was gracious and merciful. Verses 32 through 35, we're going to see an agreement with God's justice. Verses 36 through 37, we're going to see an appeal for redemption. And verse 38, we're going to see an intro to the covenant to obedience. And as we work our way through the passage, we're going to see an appeal or petition to the Lord. The petition is that the Lord would show grace and mercy to his people once again. And there are three main aspects to this appeal or petition that we're going to see as we work our way through. And that's this. One, God's unending grace and mercy shown in the past. 
to God's, God's justice and their guilt, specifically connected to their past and current trials and consequences. And third, the greatness of their needs and troubles. Verse 31, let's dig in. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, nevertheless is not the beginning of a thought. We don't start conversations that way. Good morning, nevertheless. Right? It's weird. Try it sometime. See how people respond. It's a weird way to start a conversation. So nevertheless means in spite of that or however. So this is a callback to what was previously stated. It's in the context of that, this. Despite that, this. We're going to see a lot of these transitional words as we work our way through the passage because they are building here. So there's a comparison going on here. They are saying about their ancestors, even though this is who they were and ultimately who we were, because of your great compassion and your grace, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. They're saying, God, you could have made an end to them. You could have forsaken them. But because of your grace and mercy, you didn't. The context of this verse is their history of disobedience and rebellion. And some of those specifics are laid out in the previous verses that Pastor Rob taught through last week. But they're talking about this cycle through the Old Testament. And this cycle that we see is seemingly continuous through the Old Testament, through their history. Because if we remember, the nation of Israel was God's chosen nation. And God entered into a covenant with them of blessings for obedience, consequences for disobedience, with the ultimate purpose of Israel being a lighthouse and a blessing to the world around them. When Israel walked with the Lord, the Lord would bless them, and through them, their world would be blessed. And the, the world could experience and get to know the greatness of God through their interactions with Israel. But despite the presence of the Lord and despite the miracles of God, Israel would walk away from the Lord and worship false gods and false idols. So the consequence of that would be that God would send them off into foreign nations and they would be overtaken by these foreign nations and kings. And then after some time, the people would change their minds. They would repent. They would come back to God. And then God in his grace and mercy would redeem them restoring them back into fellowship with himself. Then after some time, the cycle repeats. Disobedience, discipline, repentance, restoration. Discipline, or disobedience, discipline, repentance, restoration. Over and over and over and over and over and over. And if you think I'm exaggerating, look at the book of Judges. The entire book of Judges is this cycle over and over and over. So this is what's being referred to when verse 31 says, nevertheless. It's saying, in spite of that cycle, God in his grace and mercy did not make an end of them or forsake them. It's an amazing and beautiful concept that we see played out through the whole Old Testament. And we see at the end of the verse, it says, for you are a gracious and merciful God. What it's saying here is this, God is grace 
and mercy. God doesn't just show grace and mercy. Perfect grace and mercy is who God is. These are the very nature of God. These aren't terms that we define and attribute to God. These are terms that God is and are defined by his very existence. So let's define grace and mercy the best we can, which is ultimately how God has revealed himself through history. So grace, simply put, could be unmerited divine favor or receiving the undeserved. Mercy is not receiving or not getting what is deserved. These are two contrasting evidences of God's love towards us. God's grace and mercy is displayed from the fullness of who God is. Because God is grace and mercy. But in spite of their continual abandonment of God, God was faithful to give the Israelites what they don't deserve while giving them what they, I think I flipped them, to not give them what they deserve and to give them what they don't deserve. Tongue twister. So here in verse 31, it's on this basis of God's previous actions and God's character, they move on into verses 32 through 35. And over these next four verses, we're gonna see how God's people are in agreement with God's justice. Now justice, simply defined, is doing what is right. And justice, like grace and mercy, is defined by who God is. Verse 32, now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that have come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. So it's another transitional word, now. So it's in light of what we just said, and therefore, so moving forward, but on that basis. And whenever, whenever we read the word therefore in the Bible, we should always ask a question. What is the therefore, therefore? Right, it's easy to remember. It's all the same word. What is the therefore, therefore? So for the reasons that we just discussed in verse 31, which was a callback to their history, they continue on. Say, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. This is a recognition of who God is. They have experienced this. They have witnessed this. And their history is full of these great, mighty, and awesome acts of God. From the story of creation to Noah and the flood to Moses leading the people out of, out of uh, slavery in Egypt the plagues and the miracles that they saw and experienced and witnessed there. And then out in the wilderness, we have the manna from heaven and then the battles and wars won and the countless acts of God. It is an incredible history, rich with the great, the mighty, and the awesome acts of God. So they as a people know historically and experientially who God is. They continue on. God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Again, it's an appeal to the witnessed and experienced character of God. 
Then it says, let not all the hardships seem little to you that have come upon us. So here's the idea. How easy is it to disregard things that seem little? As a parent, there are times when our young children, I'm talking really young children, go through things. Might get a bump, or they might have an emotional swing, and they're going through something, and it feels so big to them. And that's because to them, it is big. But as a parent, we can easily write off what they're going through, viewing it as nothing. Because in our eyes, it's not much. But to their little heart, it's heavy. It is big. So when we take the time to love them well, it might mean viewing the situation from their eyes. Viewing it as big and heavy and walking through that situation with them. It's so easy to overlook or brush aside things that we view as insignificant. So the prayer here is that God will view their sufferings as great and heavy. The plea here is a plea for grace and mercy. They know that God is just. They are acknowledging that God is just. They are showing that God is just, but they're asking for grace and mercy. They're calling back to God's extended history of showing grace and mercy to his people. They're asking for grace and mercy by highlighting their current distress. So the end of the verse says this, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. What is that talking about? So this began around the second half of the eighth century, so 750 to 700 BC, and it's the incursion of the Assyrians that brought the period of oppression to the Jewish people. It began with Tiglath-Pileser III. And so here in Nehemiah, we're in 444 BC, and so the period of oppression that they're referring to began 300 years previous. The people have been living through hardship and oppression for the past 300 years. And they continue on, verse 33. It says, Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Again, another connecting word, it says yet. So even so, even though we have been oppressed for the last 300 years, which is a lot, even though we have been oppressed for 300 years, God, you have been righteous and faithful and gracious all the way through it. It is us who have acted wickedly. They have a proper view of who God is. They have a proper view of who they were. It is amazing how we can go through trials and our immediate response is to question the goodness of God. These people have gone through 300 years of oppression and they don't dare do so here. They know that God is righteous, just, and faithful. Verse 34. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. So what's interesting here is if we compare this list to the list in, uh, in verse 32, we see that the prophets are omitted from the list of those who acted wickedly, but were included in the list of those who faced hardships because of the sins of the people. And so excluding the prophets, all of the people, 
had the law, they had the commands of the Lord, they had the warnings of the Lord, and still did not listen to the Lord. And it gets worse. Verse 35 says, Even in their own kingdom, and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. What they're saying here is, even though their, their ancestors had all of this land, they had their own land, they had their own kingdoms, they were in the midst of God's great goodness. They had his laws, they had commandments, they had all of it. They still acted wickedly. We see clearly here that they are, they are admitting and dealing with their shortcomings, their faults, their brokenness, their rebellion. They're admitting that even in a great context, a great environment, a great situation, they still rebelled. But here's the deal. It's easy to look at them and to judge them, right? Or is it just me? We look at them and we judge them, but... We have his commands, we have his laws, we have his warnings, we have so much more than that. We have the rest of the story. We have the gospel. As believers, we now have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We have his people, we have each other, who also have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. How much better of a situation is this? We are in a great place. But despite being in such a great place, how often do we find that we ignore him? So the challenge for us today is that sometimes we find ourselves thinking that our walk with God would be better or it would thrive if God gave us a better life situation. God gave us a better job or more money or more free time or just the right significant other. We trick ourselves into believing the lie that our situation was just right, that our walk with God would thrive. So let's use that as a challenge today. Make the decision today to walk with God today. Don't put it off. Don't wait for circumstances to change. Don't wait until you feel like it. Don't wait. Walk with the Lord today. And that's what we're gonna see the people commit to at the end of chapter nine, going into chapter 10. So coming out of verse 35, the people know that God has been just, the people know that God has been right, and the people know that God has treated them fairly. Which moves us into the third section, verses 36 through 37, this appeal for redemption. So again, there is three aspects to this appeal or petition for God's grace and mercy. One, God's unending grace and mercy in the past. Two, God's justice and their guilt in the present, specifically connected to their past and current consequences. And three, the greatness of their needs and troubles. Verse 36 through 37 says, Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. They're saying, God, look, behold, this is not what it was intended to be. 
The people had been called by God to be servants of God. We see that in Leviticus 25, 55. It says, for it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants who I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. God brought them out of Egypt for this purpose, to belong to him. But now here they are, in the promised land, servants of another. They're slaves in their own land, the land that God had given them, because during this time, the, uh, the Persians ruled the area. They ruled the area from 539 to 331 BC. And so while reigning, they required tribute of money, of produce, and of military service. They're not free. It wasn't supposed to be this way. The Israelites are enslaved and they're pleading for redemption. They're pleading for redemption from the rule and the reign of foreign kings. Redemption from foreign oppression. But it's not just redemption from, but it's ultimately redemption into. It's redemption to worship and serve God alone. They see that as their ultimate purpose, to worship and serve God alone but they're waiting for that physical redemption. What's amazing for us today is that this principle of redemption from and to is also true for us. This is where it gets exciting. As believers, we too were redeemed, but not simply out of condemnation, but into much, much more. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection provided once and for all that redemption from condemnation but also redemption into a new life, a new identity, and new purpose. We have been redeemed to a holy calling because of his grace, 2 Timothy 1.9. We have been redeemed from all lawlessness to purity and zeal for good works, Titus 2.14. We have been redeemed from the old nature into a new nature, Galatians 5.16-18. We have been redeemed from the law into adoption as sons, Galatians 4, 3 through 5. We have been redeemed from a yoke of slavery and into the freedom found in Christ, Galatians 5, 1. It's redemption by grace alone for good works that God prepared beforehand. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, the verse is clear. We are saved and redeemed by grace, just like the Israelites, redeemed by grace, apart from anything that we can do into good works that God prepared for us beforehand. So for us today, this is incredible. This concept of being redeemed from the law, from slavery, from the old nature, into grace, into the family of God, into a new purpose, into a new calling. That's just barely scratching the surface of what is now true for us as believers. But, transitional word, sadly, just because we have been redeemed and all of this is true doesn't mean that we don't try and place ourselves back under the law and try and serve our old masters. Romans 6, 11 through 14 fleshes, this out, fleshes out this idea. Romans 6, 11 says this. So you almost also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is what is positionally already true of us. We went from being dead to sin 
or alive to sin and dead to God to being dead to sin and alive to God because of the grace of God. The redemption has been made in Christ Jesus. Positionally, this is true of us now. We are not slaves anymore. We have been redeemed. We are made alive to God in Christ Jesus because of the grace of God. Amen? That's a huge, important truth. So in this positional context of knowing who we are, of being redeemed ones, Paul continues on to verses 12 through 14. It says this, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So here's the command. It's because of what is already true positionally of us, we can now walk in this freedom. And that order is critical to note. It's because of his grace, he has redeemed us. Therefore, now we are dead to sin and alive to God. And because that is true, we have the ability now through the Holy Spirit to not let sin reign. There is freedom in that. It's an active decision day by day. And it all starts with the heart and what is true before changed behavior. God is always after your changed heart before he's after your changed behavior. So because now we have this ability as believers, this is our direction, our response, our obligation, our privilege to live for God. And we can do that solely because of the grace of God. We have been redeemed from the law. We have been brought from death to life. So now our response is to stop offering ourselves to a defeated authority but rather to present ourselves to God for his purposes, for his glory. We are new creatures redeemed by grace. But just like Israel who forgot God and would walk away from God to worship false gods and idols, we too forget that because of the gospel we have been made free, brought from death to life. We find ourselves in the same cycle that Israel walked in. We have been both freed from and freed into. So here in Nehemiah, the people are acknowledging that. They are pleading to be freed from the dominion of the other kings and freed into serving the Lord God. So the progression of the passage in Nehemiah is this. They acknowledge their sin and the sin of their ancestors. They acknowledge that God was just, and they're appealing to the character of God his grace and his mercy, and finally his ultimate purpose for Israel. With all of this out on the table, they finally move forward into verse 38, which is an intro to the covenant to obedience. It says this, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So as the chapter ends, people aren't just remembering the past or acknowledging that God was just, gracious, and merciful. The chapter ends with action. The intent was changed behavior. We're going to see that fleshed out as Pastor Rob digs into chapter 10 next week. 
But Peter Adam says this, of course, this is the shape of what should happen every time we read the Bible and what should happen after every Bible study and sermon. The presence of God in and through his words should change our lives. The goodness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, when we look at it and experience it, it should drive us into responding to it. It should drive us into the freedom that is found in Christ. James 1.22 says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. When we study and read and learn, we must let truth permeate every area of our lives. The gospel isn't only relevant when we are in this building. The gospel is relevant in everything. The gospel changes everything. So as we wrap up today, we saw how the people called back to God's history of faithfulness, grace, and mercy towards his people. We saw how they acknowledged that God was just in his dealings towards Israel, but how time and time again, he restored them because of his faithfulness and grace. They are appealing to God's history of grace and they are banking on that grace. And as they look at their history of disobedience, rather than being discouraged or depressed by it, they saw God's consistent mercy and grace within the disobedience. So the principle, challenge, and encouragement that we can take from that is this. When we look at our own personal history, if we're honest with ourselves, we can usually find a pattern or a history of disobedience. Rather than being depressed or discouraged by it, I want you to use it. Use it to highlight the incredible grace and mercy of God. And then bask in that light. Celebrate that. Because that is good. But then just don't stay there. Move forward, like these people. Out from simple sentiment. Not into an abuse of grace, but into changed behavior. We have been shown grace. We were saved by grace. Now let's live in that grace. Let's pray.